That's when we started brainstorming, well, with this lowball offer, we've just got to beat it. The clock is ticking. We've got about a month before this offer expires. And if we're able to come up with just slightly higher than what they came in as, there's not really going to be a choice. We're going to kind of have to go with ours because it's a, a better offer. Well, we got Susie Dergam on the show today. Uh, you are the CEO of Guru Experience Company, and uh, you've got a really interesting story. It's uh, it kind of blew me away when I when I heard like the you know path of the company and kind of like the near death experience of the company and you know how you guided the company through that that whole journey. Uh, so I'm really excited to dive into that. I want to get into your product, your market, what you do in that market. Uh, but yeah, just to kick kick things off, if you don't mind, just kind of giving a, a quick overview of yourself and, of course, going into Guru Experience and what your product does. Yeah, thanks, Brian. I really appreciate you having me on the show and excited to talk about it. Um, you know, my background is not in business or from the startup world whatsoever. Uh, my my background is actually degree in uh, fine arts printmaking which is, you know, very beneficial in the in the real world and in supporting a family. Um, but it it translated into my my natural passions, which has always been technology and always loved anything tech and computer related and you know, setting up all computers uh, within my bedroom as a kid. So kind of blending the two things together, my passions of art and museums and the desire to always learn more, um, which is really what Guru Experience Code does in, in the museum space is allowing people to, you know, dive deeper, get a more enhanced experience on site and really kind of learn some of the what we like to call like Easter eggs within the museum. So like if I go to a museum and we're just, you know, kind of doing that initial discovery phase, I get walked around with the curators or, you know, somebody from leadership and, you know, they tell me all the cool behind the scene things of all the places in the museum that I'm like, this is what the visitor wants to hear. And, and that really kind of blends those two things together. Um, so yeah, I, I really love what I do, and it's it's pretty exciting once you actually get to hear all the cool stories about the museum and all the collections and stuff they have. Um, so that's really kind of what Guru Experience Co. does, and kind of brings it all together. Cool, and it's uh, you know I've I've done those tours before where there's like a tablet. Uh, maybe it was your product. I, I don't remember, but. Uh, so essentially, as a museum visitor, you kind of go in and you purchase the, uh, I don't know if it's free or if you purchase the guided experience, and then you get a tablet, and it just kind of like gives you a guided tour uh, through the space, you can kind of like zoom in on things and read the history and just kind of get like really extra detail that you wouldn't get just walking through on your own. Is that an accurate summary? Yeah, um, essentially my my background actually came from you know moving to new york city out of out of college and the desire to work in you know the most famous museum at least in the us at moma uh, museum of fine arts uh in in new york and 
realized that I didn't have the qualifications to even be a ticket taker there. They have some pretty high standards. So really kind of looked through all my options of how can I get into this world? And that's when I kind of started looking at from the vendor side. And very uniquely, I think, being on the vendor side to a nonprofit uh, institution like that, you actually get to move in pretty, pretty quickly. You know, as a ticket taker, I probably would have never had any interactions with, you know, anybody above visitor services management or anything like that. But where I got my, my into this world was, you know, I started with a company was good at management. So I started as the manager of their on-site audio tour program, which was founded by Bloomberg and was able to basically distribute, hand out audio devices, the ones you went and picked up and collected and held to your ear and and listened on-site. And that really gave me the basic knowledge of like how this whole industry works. Um, But it led me to a point where I was like, okay, these, you know, antiquated devices are extremely hard to manage. There's a lot of hardware upkeep involved in them. And everybody has a phone in their pocket. And why not use that as the the go-to? And especially as we look to younger generations, they, they're not going to pick up, you know, an audio tour from a desk with, you know, kind of looks like an old school telephone punching buttons. They're going to Google stuff. They're like, well, I could find this stuff on Google. So if you can meet them where they're at with a device that's already in their pocket with content that's actually museum content, you know, presented by the museums for the users, we should meet them there. But that's where it kind of blends over into the the next step of what our product does, which is being cloud-based where all of the stuff can be updated, content updates on the fly in real time and managed by either us as a service provider or the museums themselves. Cool. And is it like, do the users that are attending the museums, do they bring their own device and download the software or is it a device is handed to them uh, when they purchase the tour? It's a mixture of both. Some some places, if they have, you know, an audience that is, I would say, like below the age of 55, if their core demographics are, are below that, then they tend to steer towards, we don't need on-site devices. We just promote the app, tell people what to download. You know, there's got to be a lot of marketing involved from the museum side where they're actually telling people this is available and, and they should access it. Um, but we do help some of our clients. Like we have one client that is, uh, they have a lot of like World War II planes or Cold War stuff. And so a lot of the people that come in there are, you know, vets or bringing their family and maybe the younger kids will just download the app but then we also help them facilitate having you know something on site where you know you've got somebody who's like i i don't know what to do with my own phone they can just be handed a a device and and be able to access it that way as well cool is it normally free like do the do the visitors normally get this service for free or do do they normally pay for the tour most of the time it's free. I would say 
all of our clients but one have have it free but that means that it has to be either you know funded by the museum or funded by a grant there's a lot of grant proposals that go into these things which contributes to our sales cycle as we can probably jump into um but it it tends to be funded by some sort of accessibility grant um you know something that is educational accessibility is a big one uh giving people the ability to you know use screen readers or enlarge text or things like that um but that definitely means that museums have to you know find find the money to support it and then and then provide it but some cases it's paid and that normally goes with special exhibitions um, if it's a special exhibition where, you know, it's a traveling exhibition, it, it might be a, a paid type of thing. But for the most part, we try to steer away from that just because it creates a lot more finance that everybody has to do. And if we don't have to do that part, it's a lot easier. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, so uh the grant thing that's interesting I, we hadn't talked about that in the last call so uh i guess like do you help the museums get the grants or is it uh something that they have to take on their on their own to go and write the grants and try to win them so we tend to work hand in hand with them they have better access to like what grants are available but then we tailor our proposals, our, you know, all of our documentation to that specific type of grant that they're going for. So, for example, if it's an accessibility grant, we help outline, you know, all of the ways that accessibility will be, you know, more um, adaptive with using this type of uh, platform and device. Um, we also have a few that we've helped you know with grant writing and kind of writing that stuff tends to be depending on the size of the institution that most institutions have like a dedicated grant specialist on staff whose like sole job is to like write for grants i'm sure that's a tedious job <laughs> <laughs> yeah one that i would not want to have how uh, how many museums do you have? Like, or how many you know different sites do you have the product installed? Um, so right now we have seventeen, um, which you know I think sounds like a small number. And when you when most of the kind of startup world comes back into it, and and you're you know talking about selling the company and all those things, a lot of the concern comes around client concentration. Um, but the space is is not very large. And I'm sure you know from, from sales, you can spend the same amount of time on a sale that's you know going to make the company $10,000 a year as you are that's going to make you $200,000 a year. And we kind of put our efforts in that middle range we do have, you know, lower end products that, you know, make six, $7,000 a year, but most of our clients are, are in the range of between eight to 20,000 a month uh, range for what we provide. 
Oh, that's awesome. That's a great price point. Uh, and I'm sure there's like, you know, there's probably a ton of room to grow. That's probably a good segue because you just really, you celebrated a really awesome milestone for the company, I think two or three weeks ago. Uh, yeah. the, the company is now employee owned and, uh, that's, that's a really, you know, I, I won't, I want you to tell the story, uh, in your words, but that's a really big milestone that the listeners, I think will really appreciate after they hear your story and kind of what, uh, what the company and what you went through to get to where you're at now. Yeah, absolutely. So when I, uh, first came into the company, I came in as an employee. Um, I had really been, you know, thinking about leaving the industry altogether, I I wasn't in line with where things were going. A lot of things were still very device focused, and this is right at the end of 2019. Uh, so before things completely shut down, but I was I was watching a lot of investment being put into device management and leasing and owning and maintaining devices, which is a huge overhead cost, uh, you know, for a company that is then providing them on site, which requires site staff and operations. So there's a lot of costs that go into devices and maintaining and staffing on site. So I really started kind of thinking and, and looking around and, and realized that there was this company, Guru, that you know, wasn't as well known on the East Coast at the time I was I was still on the East Coast. And I was like, if I don't think many museums really know this company exists, which is, you know, completely app device based, but on your own device. But on top of that, it actually has a platform that is a CMS, a content management system that is managing that app in real time and pushing content to those devices. And I was like, if I worked for this company, I would be, you know, on the standing on the mountaintop shouting about it because most of the clients that I was working with at the time were going through, you know, we had for MoMA, we had 2000 devices that were all trusted to one Mac and all had to be plugged in if we had one content change, which took hours of the staff and my time, which just didn't seem like a very logical way to go about it. And so, you know, I looked into Guru Experience Co, realized we had, you know, a couple overlaps of, um, you know, people that we knew and I, I got in touch and, you know, ultimately got brought on, um, you know, initially, I think for like a couple weeks, I was maybe the director of operations. I don't remember really what the title was, but that lasted for like, you know, a week or two when, you know, very quickly, you know, I became the COO and was just kind of running management and all of our client stuff and pretty much everything we were doing, um, which then led me to have access to everything. And, you know, it, it, it very quickly became clear that the way the company was going, it probably wasn't going to be around for, for much longer than a, a month or two. Um, there's a lot of outstanding debt due to RVCs from the original uh, raises. There was a couple bridge notes that, that were coming due very quickly. Um, and, and we had no growth. There had been no sales, I think, in almost 
three years at that time and and really where is it going from here you know maintaining holding on to our current clients would only do so much so you know after the pandemic hit things became you know difficult in the sense that we knew we weren't making sales at that time but we had to maintain and and keep our current clients really happy so my core focus was just we all work here let's do everything we can doesn't matter if it fits within their contract or not like we're going to be here no matter what so let's provide them everything we can in this time so they can reach their visitors while the doors are closed um so with that that kind of led it to okay what are we going to do about you know the company not not being able to sustain beyond this point. Um, so that's when an interim CEO was brought in. They came in and, you know, very quickly realized there was a lot of financial irregularity, irregularities, irregularities. What's irregularities? Irregularities. Thank yep. you. <laughs> um, I have trouble with some where... random words like that sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> A lot of financial irregularities that were that were happening um, and kind of said, you know, I, I don't want any part of this. This this stuff is, you know, it's not going to be maintainable. Like best case scenario, company gets shut down. You know, VCs write it off as one of the startups that, that didn't work out. Um, you know, whereas I have a very strong loyalty to, to clients. And if we said we're providing these things, like we, we need to figure out how to do that and continue doing that. And they trusted us. So I had a really good relationship with, you know, all of our clients at that point, spoke to them, you know, on a weekly basis, um, really connecting with them to make sure we were meeting their needs and you know ultimately the board made the decision to remove the original one of the original co-founders um and i stepped in as a ceo and at the time thankfully i had a really good advisor because my initial reaction was like you know i can hold this fort down for a week or two but I'm not a ceo i have no experience in being a ceo i don't really know what that's comprised of um, whereas my advisor at the time was like, you're already doing it. You, you've been doing it for, for months. Uh, you know, you're pretty much the only one running the show here. You need to continue doing that. And I was like, all right, you know, I'll, I'll give it a try and see what happens. Um, and, and in that process, it actually, you know, became apparent that, you know, maybe I was pretty good at it. And, and so in the matter of, about about a 12 month period i was able to you know kind of right side the company i cut costs on on one side and and focused on sales on the other side and actually uh pretty much broke even within the first six months got us back to a, a place where we started to focus just on growth and was able to flip the company to be right side you know, within a 12 month period and close with a, a profitable year, which had never happened uh, prior to that. So that was kind of the, the first mark on there where I was like, what okay, year was that, by the way? Making, that was 2021. 
Okay. So that was a tough year, I'm sure. It probably started out as a really tough year for museums. Yes. Yes. Um, the, the great thing was is that museums were starting to make a shift at that time where suddenly in 2020, they realized most, you know, maybe some of the high level museums like, you know, the MoMAs or fine arts museums, you know, kind of around the U.S., they had maybe some digital uh, aspects that they were already doing and, and putting out to the public, but there became a push of like, oh, we need a digital strategy that's that's ongoing and, you know, continuing to do this. And, and some places had, you know, the ability to do it in-house and maybe were able to be a little more cheeky about it. Um, like the Getty Museum, they did a fantastic job of, you know, reaching their their visitors um, through social media with, you know, kind of some cheeky stuff that they put out there that users really enjoyed. And they actually created quite a nice following from that. But seeing places like that happen, maybe some of the smaller institutions throughout the, the U.S. were like, okay, we, you know, maybe it's not as scary as we thought it was. And we can kind of branch out into these areas as well. Um, so that's when it kind of led to, okay, we're actually starting to do really well. And, you know, we're growing. I think the we had never seen actual growth on on our uh, books before. And so in 2021 is when, you know, I closed the year with, I think we were at 23% growth for uh, year over year when we basically hadn't done any. So I was like, well, you know, startup world, we got to do something next. So that's when I pitched uh, Series B to Qualcomm and they were like, yeah, love the ideas. All looks great. Was Qualcomm one of your original investors? Yes. Yep. Did they have, yep. I guess they have a venture arm or something, or I wasn't familiar with that. Yeah. In in San Diego, they're one of the, I would say, biggest ones that, you know, kind of invest. They have their own venture arm. They invest in smaller companies, you know, with the idea that, you know, ideally they roll up and, you know, maybe get bought out. Which you know, would be fantastic. Um, so, you know, meeting with Qualcomm, I think was a really good and, you know, it had its ups and downs. We met with them. I was very pleased that they, you know, loved the idea, thought that we could be successful at it, but they were like, your, your cap table is a mess. You know, everything is owned by employees who don't work here. You as a CEO have no equity in anything. Like, you know, there there needs to be some cleanup here, you know, before we even have a discussion. So who all, I don't know if you can dive into it, but who all, like, what was all on the cap table? Was it like mostly employees or was it, you know, I guess Qualcomm was probably obviously on the cap table. Were there other investors on there or? Yeah, we had, um, you know, from our Series A, I think that was one of the things that our, our previous co-founder was really good at was, you know, kind of going out there, talking to the VCs and, and getting them, you know, involved. I think we had somewhere in the range of like 20 different people, institutions, all kind of involved in, in the cap table. Wow. Um, but most of them were like, you know, okay, you're four years out from your Series A 
and nothing's happened. Like there's been no no trajectory of, of growth happening here. And you know, maybe maybe Susie's been able to prove that there can be growth, but it's not at that rate of you know 10x that that they want to see. And so, you know, that's when it gave me the power to realize something something had to give. We had to do something to help clean up the cap table. There were quite a few bridge notes that had happened and, you know, those were coming due and, you know, nobody had really seen a return on anything. And that's when I started to learn more about the startup world of like, you know, they may be investing 20 or 30 in their portfolio and they'd rather see you shoot for the moon or just completely, you know, fail and back out. Whereas, you know, that's not, my, that's not how I operate. I'm, you know, more of a, an operator at my heart of like, you know, making things work. And if we grow, you know, 5% in five years, then I'm, I think that's success. We're growing. Whereas to a VC, that's, not <laughs> and and they don't want to wait around for that. So, you know, I had an opportunity to, you know, kind of network with some people where, you know, one of my I, I call him an advisor, but more like a friend because we I wasn't paying him. Um <laughs> he uh had linked me up with a company that wanted to do a roll-up strategy and had started on it. And they needed a, a good example of, you know, being able to start that process for their investors. So it was kind of a, a win-win for me because I got to clean up the cap table and, and then, you know, ultimately exit the company. Previous investors were, you know, I wouldn't say elated about it, but they were, you know, happy there was a movement and something happened and, and you know, they were able to close it out on their end. So that's when I sold the company to Live Current Media, which was working on a, a roll-up strategy. And that was in 2022, um, which most of 2022 was focused on on that. Um so that was that was the first uh, catalyst into exiting the company for the first time. So you sold the whole the whole company, like all 100% of the equity went went to that uh, that firm. Yes. Yep. So I sold the company in whole. Uh, one of the most important things, you know, for our space and industry is your EIN number. And it gets looked at all the time of like how long you've been in business, you know, what what you've been doing. And to lose that number is like that would essentially be death for us and starting over because we have things like the cage number, the SAM number and all those things get looked at in, in RFPs. And a lot of it has to do with like how long you've been standing so it was really important to me that I sold the company, you know, as a whole. Um, so sold 100% of the equity to them. You know, of course, I, you know, a huge part of it was myself coming in and my teammates coming in. So we got equity in, in the larger, um, you know, roll up of things. But Guru itself was 100% owned by, by the parent company. 
I want to take a quick break from the episode and say, if you're enjoying this content, the best way you can say thank you is to subscribe. So if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you're on one of the podcast platforms, hit the subscribe button there as well. And also share it out to your friends and colleagues. If you find this content useful and you think other people will enjoy it as well, please send it out. And back to the episode. Cool. So the, I think the story is just getting started here. There's a whole nother uh, leg <laughs> yes. to uh, to what comes next that, uh, you know, it's it's just kind of starting to get juicy. But I think there's like, uh, you know, the, the next part was really when you were telling me the first time I was just kind of like on the edge of my seat. Uh, so if you don't mind continuing, I'd love to share the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, kind of going into this, you know, everybody was gung-ho, super excited, and was like, this is what we ultimately wanted. We wanted to be part of a bigger team. We wanted to have additional resources where we could share resources and kind of cross-share knowledge on, you know, pretty much everything. Um, So initially coming in, there was a lot of, you know, getting together, teams really overlapping, overlapping, understanding one another, um, and and really kind of focusing on like, okay, how do we all grow as like a community um, in, into our spaces? And initially, you know, everything was great. Everybody was happy. We were doing all those things, but then their funding ultimately fell through. Um, and, you know, they had had a, a portion of funding come in, which kind of kicked off the initial phase of things. But then, you know, kind of as as the the days and weeks and months started to progress on, there was always, okay, well, you know, now we're looking at this avenue and now we're looking at this avenue. And so was that funding team, to buy the company or is that funding for operations? Funding for operations to continue the roll up strategy to, you know, continue bringing on new companies and, you know, continuing to grow the community of companies with, you know, kind of like-minded products to put out in the space. So they had already um, acquired you, but then, so you, you were supposed to be a platform then in this roll-up mm-hmm. and then they were going to roll yep. up other like add-ons into, into your platform. Yes. Yep. Um, and so that's when, you know, their funding started to, you know, dwindle, they're maybe getting little pieces here or there in, in certain avenues. But it was, it became pretty clear that Guru was the only company that was actually profitable and, you know, had uh, a source of revenue coming in. And so, you know, initially, you know, the first couple months, you know, funding from from gurus going to the parent company and you know ultimately they they own us um you know i i definitely uh fought back as much as i possibly could on you know supporting and stabilizing my own team and making sure that we were able to service our our clients but any of our you know kind of overhead was was going to to the parent company um, and since we were really the only company that was, you know, successful in the being profitable aspect, um, it ended up being, you know, decided to, to use us, uh, you know, to leverage debt. 
And so Guru's books were, you know, ultimately leveraged against in order to secure additional funding, debt capital um, to maintain and continue to drive the parent company, Um, which initially, you know, if additional stuff came in, would have been fine. Um, But after probably about five months of that, I was like, okay, you know, something's got to give. It's either, you know, we all go down or or there's going to be a split here where, where we've got to figure things out. So my, you know, first path was to to take us back to market and, you know, see see what I could do with Guru on the open market. And, you know. And was the was PE pretty- like supportive of you reselling it? Yeah, yeah, they, I mean, they kind of knew because, you know, it, it was very friendly, like, um, you know, they were people that I'd met with for a while, you know, we had common friends and, you know, they, they didn't want to see Guru, you know, go out of business from this, you know, transaction. So they were supportive of me bringing it back to market. And, you know, I, I did that. We got, I think, three, um, you know, term sheets, uh, initially, you know, all for, you know, what, what I would consider, it was probably like 1.5, um, revenue were most of the term sheets and, you know, kind of market standard for what we are in, in our industry. Um, but ultimately one of the companies that we had a term sheet with, they were looking at doing a roll up in the museum space. And as soon as we got to the sales cycle aspect of it, when they realized like, okay, if, if you've got a sales cycle that, you know, averages between one year and 375 days, um, that's a really hard sales cycle to be able to expedite and, and grow at the you know seven percent rate or the seven x rate that they were they were looking to hit. So they ultimately were like, you know, we think maybe the museum industry is not what we thought it was, and you know we're we're going to bow out. So that was one of them. Um, uh, another one was one that actually created the catalyst for the team and I to buy the company out. They were a little more aware of the the current situation that you know maybe the parent company was struggling and you know there was going to be a time where it would become a fire sale we maybe weren't there yet but they were you know aware that it was going to get to there so initially they had come in you know with the idea they were going to come in with you know a, a pretty nice offer all cash. Um, But then once they started to think about it, they were like, oh, you know, maybe, maybe it's not the right fit. But if you guys, you know, go back to market, and it doesn't work, you know, let let us know. So after the other term sheets fell through, we go back to them. And, you know, they kind of threw in a, a pretty low ball offer. Um, which ultimately the parent company accepted because by that time it was like, okay, yeah, we got to, you know, Guru's, either everybody's going under or we let Guru go and, you know, maybe they're successful over here. The 
the issue with that for me was, is it was an asset sale. And that meant that, you know, even though I was told, you know, you won't lose control of the company, you know, you'll still be able to make the decisions. I knew that there was no coming back from that. Guru didn't really exist after that. We were an asset in somebody else's portfolio. Yes, we could still use our name, but that's not what the team and I had been working for for, you know, the past four years was to just become an asset in somebody else's portfolio where they could ultimately decide whatever they wanted to do with the product um, and and maybe say the museum space isn't you know going to expedite or grow the way we want it to so we're going to use it over here which is you know not what we wanted so that's when we started brainstorming like well with this lowball offer like we've just got to beat it and you know the the clock is ticking we've got about a month before this offer expires and if we're able to come up with you know just just slightly higher than what they came in as like you know it's there's not really going to be a choice like they're they're going to kind of have to go with ours because it's a, a better offer um and so the the team and i kind of just put our heads together, our, our retirements, uh, all of our family and friends, and, you know, ultimately raised enough capital to bring it to the table and, and say, you know, here, here's our offer. We, we'd like to buy the company and, you know, kind of take it over and, and just have it be self-owned. Um, and so that was about a, a month sprint of, you know, getting that all together, um, which basically is just comprised of the the team and myself, you know, a couple of my family members, a couple of the team's family members, and uh, probably one of my favorites is one of the original co-founders, um, who's also now on our board, uh, was just thrilled to be back involved in the company. You know, she originally had the concept for Guru in the first place, um, and so was super excited to support and be an owner and guru again. Um, so we, you know, basically just made it happen with a shoestring and, and just coming together. And ultimately, you know, after a month or two of paperwork and all that fun stuff, um, now actually own the company outright. So that like when I first heard that story, I was blown away and uh, congrats. I know you just uh, got the paperwork finalized and, you know, Guru Experience is officially owned by you and the team and your, uh, you know, angel investors that are involved now. So it's very much uh, an independent company, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, free of, you know, private equity or VC or any of that kind of stuff. So it's super exciting uh, to hear that. And I feel like, you know, I was reflecting on that story uh, you know, before we recorded today. And it's like, you know, the first time uh, in guru history that, you know, guru experience history that you've been sort of unencumbered by, uh, you know, whether it's like market economic forces or investment, you know, uh, investor forces, or just some kind of like weight that's holding the company back. Like this is the first time you're free from all that. Uh, so I, I, you know, I'm super excited to see what you do with it next and, and where it goes. Uh, just congrats on all that. Well, thank you. That that means a lot. I 
I have to agree that that's always been kind of my struggle, not coming from, you know, the, the business world or the startup world um, initially was like, like, can we just, you know, focus on what we actually do and less about, you know, all the company high level, uh, you know, ins and outs and selling and raising and all of that stuff. Like, I, I just want to do what we do and do it well. Um, and for the first time, you know, at least in since it raised, you know, their series A in the beginning, like that is actually the focus is just focusing on our product and making it better and, you know, eliminating all the tech debt that built up over the time, focusing on these other things, just being able to focus on creating new products, bettering the product, enhancing it and connecting, you know, with our clients on a, on a deeper level, more one-on-one -on -one discovery workshops and just bettering the experience on site, which is why the team and I are all here in the first place. And we've actually been having a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Especially because you're profitable. I mean, you know, all this like financial stuff matters when you're burning cash, I guess, you know, like mm -hmm. raising money and investor relations and your, your growth metrics and all that stuff. But if you're profitable, you could just focus on the product and focus on the customer and just let, you know, let the right, keep, keep a little bit of an eye on the P and L, but just let the rest kind of take care of itself while you're, you know, focused on building a really great customer experience for your customers. Yeah, exactly. That's always, you know, I always say to the team, like, if you have an idea or you think there's something that is, you know, going to help move us one, you know, one mark closer to being able to secure, you know, some new clients because we don't have these things, like, yeah, let's talk it out and figure out where it fits into the roadmap. And, you know, I think we've got some exciting ideas that we've been working on to, you know, kind of meet the future generations that we want to be going into museums. You know, museum visitorship is still down significantly from 2019. And it really is about bringing in that younger generation. There was kind of a, a generational leap that happened during the pandemic time where, you know, the, I would say, you know, age below my age group is maybe not going to museums and they're not becoming members you know maybe they're going bringing their families bringing you know young kids but the the membership pool which is where most museums get a significant amount of their money um you know memberships turn into donors and and so on and and that's really kind of missing in in the generation our generation and the generation below because I think it kind of strives from, you know, subscription fatigue. A membership is another level of subscription, kind of an old school one. Um, but there are definitely ways to reach those people. And if you're serving up those benefits and showing them what they are in a place where they already are, which is on their devices, um, you know, it's just one step further to help maintain and keep these institutions around, you know, for the younger generations. Yeah, absolutely. 
let's talk about the product uh, because you you mentioned uh, kind of working through technical debt. Uh, I'm curious, like, do you do all your product engineering and product design in house, or uh, like, talk to me about the product and the team working on the product? Yeah. So one of the really beneficial things of becoming part of the parent company is our now CTO. Um, was the CTO of a company that he was uh, part of that ultimately sold to the parent company. And he kind of came in with that. They had sold for assets. Um, so, you know, the company essentially had been dissolved. But he is just a, a whiz at anything and everything tech way and very much has a very a similar brain to the way that I work, which means we work really well together. Meaning like if he doesn't know how to do it, then he just goes and learns it. Like you can learn anything on the internet. So he just goes and figures it out, uh, which is very, very important with a small team uh, wearing many hats and, and just finding the solution and kind of, self-teaching you yourself how to do things because the answers are out there and so he you know kind of came in and really was able to assess that like yeah we have a great base we have a great product we have a great place to start from you know everything's cloud-based it's got you know the cms that the museums or us as a service uh can maintain update evolve the apps but it, if we got 10 of those new museums at once, maybe we would be, I wouldn't say in trouble, but we wouldn't have the team to facilitate it. And that's because our infrastructure, you know, when it was originally built, wasn't necessarily built in the way that technology today should be built where everything's you know containerized automations are being used and being able to deploy templated base packages with you know interchanging components in real time um you know a lot of that stuff was done manually and created a lot of you know branches and forks and all the fun stuff in code that you know, maybe wasn't lined up the way that it could or should have been um, for a scalable software that, you know, is SaaS at its core. Um, so he spent the first, you know, after coming in from the parent company, he was kind of helping us work through those things. So he started the containerizing process and, and really frameworking that out. But when we decided to buy out the company, he had been working with us for a little while. And, you know, I asked him, like, will, will you come with us? And he was like, yeah, he's like, I, I love working on a product that actually sees the light of day. You know, he had spent seven years working on a product that, you know, basically sits on a server somewhere now. Um, and didn't get to have that, you know, users are here, there's feedback, there's stuff to evolve on. So working on real product that's, you know, in the hands, we've got probably across our clients somewhere around the range of 1.5 million users on all of our products at 
you know, a, a given time period. Um, and so having that actual real live scenario where you can evolve and make things better and enhance things based off of, you know, user analytics and feedback coming from the institutions was really just exciting to him. And we are so thankful to, to have him. So that was one of the greatest things that I think, you know, came out of that whole scenario. But that leads us to, you know, kind of where we are now, where our infrastructure is, we're probably like three weeks out. Everything is on uh, staging right now. And we're just throwing everything we can at it to make sure we can't break it. Um, but we're probably in the next three weeks are just going to roll out our our new phase of it, which is all behind the scenes. Clients won't notice any difference whatsoever, uh, but it was something that needed to happen, which just allows us to, we get 15 new clients in one month. It, we could get 100 in one month. It, it wouldn't matter because each one's its own container and each one, you know, operates and runs separately, but they're all derived from the important SaaS part of things, which is the templates that drive it. Oh, that's awesome. So this, this falls big, uh, big, big series of events for guru experience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Um, all right. Uh, I think just one interesting thing we can close on, you were telling me a little bit about uh, the startup scene in San Diego and kind of what that's like. Uh, I also think you told me, maybe I'm mistaken, but I think you told me at one point, uh, one of your mentors uh, was the founder of uh, GoFundMe. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So the startup scene in San Diego, surprisingly, is is small. I realized once I got out here. Um, and just being able to be in the same place with them and kind of network and get invited to things. Um, Evo Nexus is one of the uh, kind of startup uh, think tanks that there is here, and Guru was part of it back in the day. And even though I wasn't involved in it back in the day, um, you know, I kind of got invited to be part of it now. So I, I work um, with them closely, sometimes get asked to be mentors for, you know, new companies coming in. But it's really fun to just be part of that process. But that kind of, it always gets your brain turning when you're hearing about some of these, you know, younger companies that are just started or the way that they're working. But being able to, you know, introduce them or talk to them about, you know, things that we've tried in the space, even though we're in completely different industries, there's always overlap in, in the startup scene of things. Um, but one of the original um, board members and uh, I think at the time, maybe an angel investor at first and then maybe invested uh, through one of his uh, investment arms, but Andy Ballister. Uh, co-founder of GoFundMe, um, you know, was very, very helpful to me when I took over as CEO from a tech standpoint. As much as I love tech, I don't know what I don't know. And the whole infrastructure, you know, full stack stuff that happens behind the scenes was just not, you know, something I could learn on the fly that quickly to be able to assess what to do with the company. 
So he was very helpful and beneficial, uh, you know, in that process and helping me kind of navigate it. But, you know, to this day, he actually just launched a, a new company that he's co-founded. So he's been, you know, very involved with that. But we connect on a, you know, semi-regular basis and just kind of share the information of stuff. And he's great at connecting me with the people since he knows so many of like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so about, you know, whatever they've experienced, something very similar and just share knowledge and share ideas. Um, you know, as well as uh, UCSD, the college here has a whole innovation uh, department in ARM. Um, and I've been talking with them. Um, actually, they asked me to be a mentor to some of their students in that department. So hopefully in January, I think, is when their new mentor program starts up. So excited to be part of that and do that. But really just it's a different scene compared to the East Coast being, you know, East Coast native. Uh, it's, it's a different world uh, out here in terms of younger generation really thinking about business and startup and running companies and coming out with new ideas. Whereas like that was not the conversations of, you know, at least my teen years uh, in the East Coast. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some good, you know, Boston, New York have great startup scenes. Obviously, the West Coast, you've got San Francisco and Silicon Valley and Seattle and then Austin, Texas and, you know, Midwest. Uh, Philly's got a pretty good scene, but I think it's uh, I think it's probably like it's small, like like you said about San Diego, where, you know, you spend enough time here in Philly and meet meet the founders mm -hmm. you pretty much like you know you meet a lot you meet a lot of them pretty fast uh there's definitely what's interesting about philly is there's like there's some really big companies like tech companies that are just so under the radar they're just you know they don't get out they're not at events like duck duck go is based uh right in the suburbs Ooh. of philly and uh gabe weinberg who's the founder he's like super quiet like he doesn't really like he doesn't get out and do stuff like he's just heads down on product all the time and, mm -hmm. I've, you know, I've seen him at events years and years ago, but, uh, you know, that's like, th there's a bunch like that in Philly that are just kind of under the radar that are just heads down, like just churning out products. Uh, but, you know, the people that come out and like kind of hang out and network and do stuff, it's, you know, it's a lot of the same people. You'll see a lot of the same faces over and over again. So it feels like you're in a small pond uh, yeah. know, in Philly, even it's it, Philly's a big city too. It's like the fifth largest in the country. So. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah, no, I, it's probably one of my favorite parts about being involved in this as much as, you know, I'm technically an introvert at heart. I always am excited about the stuff that I'm, you know, learning when I actually do involve myself and do those things. So, you know, even doing this with you today is like me, you know, knowing that I need to break out of my shell and be involved in these things, because that's where the inspiration sparks. That's where you learn new ideas that, you know, maybe you weren't going to, you're not going to think of on your own. Um, so just having these conversations is, you know, I thank you. And I really appreciate it because it, it definitely helps me think about things in new ways and new lights. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you came on. This story is amazing. I, you know, I'm super excited to share it with the listeners. And uh, 
you know, it, it really, uh, when, when you first told me, when you first told me this time around, I know the story, but even still, I'm kind of like on the edge of my seat, like hearing all the details, uh, super amazing. Uh, I'm really happy to see that guru experience pushed through all that and, and survived and is now poised for better growth and more sustainable growth than ever in his, you know, in its, in its, you know, lifetime. So really excited for you and the team. Uh, is there anything else you want to close on? Like any, uh, plugs you want to do for your team or your product or anything you want to kind of like call out? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, to any younger listeners, like, don't be afraid of the things you don't know, like, and find advisors. That's probably one of the best things that, you know, happened for me was I found people who were, they believed in me and helped me believe in myself. Um, but also being, you know, I'm probably transparent to a fault with my team, which sometimes, you know, can make people worried or concerned, but it builds a level of trust that, you know, the team knows that I'm there for them and they're there for me and that we're in this together. It's not just, you know, one of us who's uh, trying to drive things, but everybody has a voice and everybody has a, a desire to get to where we're going. Um, so, you know, kind of my, my two things are break out of your shell, figure out things you don't know, find a way to learn them, talk to people. There's a lot of shared knowledge out there and most people are excited to share their knowledge. Um, so listen, talk. And for me, being transparent, I think is, you know, super important. Did you clear your cash flow?